He came under cover of darkness. And before you judge him, you would have come under cover of darkness too, given the circumstances. There had been a lot of buzz about this Jesus guy since he came on the scene. He was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the stories were being told and circulated around the city that when he came up out of the water, the voice of God actually spoke from the clouds, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the buzz began. It was, the, it was really the early part of his ministry. He was just getting started, but by now, the Pharisees were watching him. They had kept an eye on him, and they had seen with their own eyes that he had the power to heal. They had seen with their own eyes that he was performing miracles and signs and wonders. He was teaching the people, and it was all just beginning, and the buzz was huge because who is this guy? And so the Pharisees talked among themselves trying to figure this out. Is this a good sign? Is this a bad sign? Is he for us? Is he against us? What should we make of this Jesus guy? And so Nicodemus waited until it got dark because it was too risky to be seen with him. We're not sure we want to be affiliated with him. We're not sure who he is. We're not sure whether it's good or bad that he's here. We need to find out some more. And so Nicodemus, on behalf of his friends, the other priests, went to him under cover of darkness just to start a conversation. And when he began the conversation there in John chapter 3, he said this. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are from God, for no one can do the works that you do unless he's come from God. So, so he started out by buttering him up. He wanted to make sure he understood that even among the Pharisees, they took notice of him and they assumed that he must be from God because look at the works that he was doing. And I don't know what Nicodemus's plan was for that conversation, but I promise you it didn't go the way he thought it would. Jesus immediately began to talk to him about something that made absolutely no sense. Jesus just looked at him and said, I tell you the truth, that unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus thought, well, this is a teaching I've never heard. I, I don't even know what he's talking about. And, and we sort of laugh when we read it because of his response was so ridiculous. He says, he says uh, what do you mean? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? How can that happen? And Jesus goes on and talks about this powerful thing about being born again. And this is the first time in all of human history that this phrase of being born again comes to the forefront of the scene. And and Nicodemus walks away from that conversation, scratching his head and going, I'm not sure I know anything more than when I got here. You must be born again, Jesus says. Now, we're studying the book of 1 Peter together. It's in the back of your Bible. You're going to want to turn to 1 Peter with me. Um, we're going to spend most of our time today there in 1 Peter chapter 1. So I want to invite you to find 1 Peter. If you uh, are not familiar with your Bible, there's a table of contents right at the beginning. Um, but you should be able to find it. I'll give you a second to do that. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. But I want to remind you as you're turning there of what we've already seen here in 1 Peter. Um, as we started this study a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verse 3 
of 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to read it to you again. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there it is, that phrase again. He's caused us, Peter tells us, to be born again to a living hope. And you're going to find that this is a theme that runs throughout Peter's entire letter. This idea that we have to stand firm because absolutely we have been born again to a living hope. That we are not without hope. That there is reason for us to be hopeful because we've been born again to this living hope. And what we're going to try to do as we work through 1 Peter is sort of unpack all of that and figure out what difference that makes in our actual lives. But before, let me just remind you, and you don't have to turn there, but in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, we have these stories. There's a, there's a lost coin. And then, and then there's a story of a lost son. We know it as the story of the prodigal son, which is kind of a, a really terrible title that we've given this story because it's not a story about a son. It's a story about two sons, and we can learn just as much from either one of their responses. Um, but really, I don't think the story is about either one of the sons. I think the story is about God, the Father, the Father who is constantly looking to express His mercy and His grace to us. The Father who makes it possible. And so you know the story, right? The, the younger son, um, he's all arrogant and full of himself. And he says to his father, listen, I don't want to wait for you to die before I get my inheritance. So let's just pretend you're dead now. Give me your money. And his father is brokenhearted, but he gives him his share of the inheritance. And this young man takes off with the money. It's more money than he's ever seen in his life. And finally, it's no longer his dad that's rich, but he's rich. And he goes into another country where nobody knows him. And the scripture tells us that he spends all of this money on all kinds of crazy living. And when he has spent all of his money on wine, women, and song... He comes to a place where he's out of money, and just as that would happen, there's a famine that hits the land, and he finds himself with no money, no place to stay, no job, no income, no anything, and so he goes, and he, he um, seeks employment, and he ends up feeding pigs, which, by the way, is not the dream job of a Jewish man. And he's feeding pigs and he realizes that he's actually jealous of the pigs because at least they have something to eat. And he's trying to dig out of their food something that he can eat. And he reaches the end of himself. How many of you know it's good to reach the end of yourself? And so he reaches the end of himself and the scripture says when no one was giving him anything, he finally reached the end of himself and he said, what am I doing here? I, I'm, I'm starving to death, but my father's servants are living better than I'm living. I'm gonna go back to my father. I'm not gonna ask him to uh, receive me as his son, but I'm just gonna ask him to give me a job. Maybe I can be taking care of the horses or taking care of the cattle or taking care of the sheep. Maybe I can do something like that. 
And so he makes his way back, and when he gets almost to the home, he finds his father there, and his father runs and greets him and puts a robe on him and puts a ring on his finger and kills the fatted calf and has this amazing party for him. And we love this story because it reminds us that even though we get far from God, if we will just come back, he's waiting for us, amen? He can't wait to throw his arms around us. He can't wait to welcome us back into his joy and his love. But the interesting thing happens with the other brother. Because there's an older brother who has been keeping the rules the whole time. He never asked for any money. He never disrespected his dad. He never ran off and spent the money on all this. And he becomes very hurt and very angry and very jealous because he sees this party going on. And he comes back and he goes, what's the party? And they said, your brother is back and your father has killed the fatted calf. And he's throwing this great party. And finally, he says, I refuse to go in there. His father comes out to him. And his father says, what's the problem? We're rejoicing And here's what he says, my son was dead and he has become alive again. That's the reason for the rejoicing. My son was dead and has become alive again. He doesn't say my son wandered off and he came back. No, that that doesn't explain it well enough. He says, my son was dead to me. As far as I knew, I would never see him again. There was no hope of any restoration in this relationship. And when I looked up, I saw him coming. My son, who was dead, has become alive again. And as we question this phrase, born again, what does this mean? I think this picture of a son being dead who becomes alive again, at least begins to scratch the surface. See, if we can learn anything from the Gospels, it's this. Jesus is in the transformation business. (laughs) You guys, I just started preaching. You can't be asleep already. What I just said is profound, and and it's very rare that I say anything profound, so pay attention. (laughs) Jesus is in the transformation business. Oh my goodness, does that ever matter, right? Um, Think about this. He he goes to those fishermen right on the shore of Galilee, and what does he say to them? They're, They're just cleaning fish and cleaning their nets and getting their boats ready for the next day of tedious work, the same thing they've always been doing. They're great fishermen, and he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In the process of following me, you will be transformed into something you are not already. Follow me and I will transform your life and you will become what you could not become apart from me. Jesus in the transformation business. Think about this. His first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John is at the wedding in Cana, right? And I know some of you uh, people who love wine are like, it's my favorite story in the Bible. I go, I know. But, but there's these giant water pots which are used for purification, right? And, and I don't know if you've ever had anybody explain this to you, but these water pots are not pitchers. 
They are gigantic things that are this tall. They have hundreds of gallons of water in them. And then people, they dip into them because they have to go through ceremonial washing, right? It's their religious duty before they can eat or drink or do anything. And so they have these water pots there, but they've run out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus is like, you're the only one here who knows who I am. Why are you putting this pressure on me? I wasn't planning on doing anything today. And then Mary looks at the waiter and says, whatever he says, do it. Which, by the way, is great advice. And, <laughs> and, and so here's what happens. Um, Jesus tells him to take the water and pour it out, and the water now has become wine, right? He doesn't, the scripture doesn't say that the water looked like wine. It doesn't say that the water tasted like wine. It says that the water had become wine. And this is the picture that we're gonna see all through the Gospel of John as we read our Bibles. We're gonna see Jesus constantly doing things to take something that was and make it something that it shall become. And this idea that purification, that the religious system, this idea that they had to do all the right washings and all the right sacrifices and show up at all the right feasts and do all the right events and all that stuff in order to somehow make their way to God, to somehow earn their way to God. Jesus goes, I'm going to take that system and I'm going to transform it. And we find out later at the Last Supper that the wine represents what? His blood. He's making a statement here. He's saying, as I transform this system into a new covenant, I'm transforming this water into wine. And he didn't just change it, he transformed it. Well, where are you going with this, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Too many of us have accepted a view of Christianity where we change our religious affiliation and we change some of our activities and we accept the idea that we're going to get to heaven one day and that has become the full definition of what it is for us to be a Christian and we have settled in for an unbiblical definition of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus did not come to fix you. Jesus did not come to to reform you. He did not come to improve you. Jesus did not come to change you. He came to earth, lived a sinless life, gave his life to hang on a bloody cross, raised again on the third day so that he could transform you. He's in the transformation business. What he's doing is much, much bigger than what most of us think we signed up for when we said yes to Jesus. He came to take that which was dead and make it alive. That's you and me. And if you're a Christian, I just want to say you you need to change your stinking thinking. You got to stop thinking of the work of Jesus in your life as being something that brings change. And you have to get in tune with the biblical picture of the fact that Jesus didn't come to change you, he came to transform you. 
So, so think of it this way. You go to work and, and you're working hard all day and you've got your work uniform on and you're sweaty and you're dirty and you've been working all day and you come home from work, you take off those dirty clothes, you jump in the shower, you get cleaned up, you put on some clean clothes and now you're ready to face the evening. What has just happened to you is you have undergone change. You changed your clothes. You changed your level of body odor, Right? <laughs> But that's about it, because you know what happens? I don't know where I'm going. Sorry, these things pop into my head. Sorry. So, so you know how you stunk when you came home from work? You're going to stink again tomorrow. That's the truth, right? And so you go through these changes. There's a certain amount of change that you can handle and you can take care of and you have a responsibility to do. So you embrace that change. That's change. Transformation is something entirely different. Transformation is when a little caterpillar is crawling around the dirt, climbs up on a twig, forms a chrysalis, goes to sleep, becomes a gob of goo, and then fights his way out of the chrysalis as a beautiful butterfly that looks nothing at all like the transformed creature that crawled in there. That's transformation. And that's what Jesus is interested in. That's what Jesus paid the price to do. And in our study of 1 Peter, we've only covered 12 verses so far. And I know you're all looking at me like, well, what are we going to cover today? One more verse? Yes, we are. <laughs> but, but in those first 12 verses, we've been given a pretty good description of the fact that Jesus came to give us new life, right? Peter talks about how he has caused us to be born again in verse three, the verse that I read to you earlier. Uh, how his work on the cross guarantees our victory over sin. How um, our place in heaven has now been made secure by the work that he did. And our inheritance from God is guaranteed to all those who come to him by faith. And how he has become our living hope. We've already seen that in these first 12 verses. And that's just the first 12 verses of Paul's letter. But the direction of the entire letter shifts in verse 13 with one word. The word is, therefore. I may not even finish one verse. We might just preach on therefore. <laughs> because of these first 12 verses, he says, therefore... Because all of this is true, therefore, because he has actually given you new life, therefore, because you have been born again to a living hope, he says, therefore, because of what God has done for us, everything in our lives is therefore being transformed. And starting in verse 13, Peter tells us that because of what he has described in the first 12 verses, we are now going to not just live differently, but be different than we ever used to be. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus had a very, very dear friend. His name is Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, the word comes to Jesus who is out of town that his dear friend Lazarus 
is not just sick, but really, really, really sick. And they're not sure he's going to make it. And so they send for Jesus. Why would you send for Jesus? Because he's a healer. Because they have watched him again and again and again lay his hands on strangers he'd never met before and restore them to health. And they figure that if he uh, cares enough about strangers to do this, if he has enough power to do this for strangers, how much more is he going to want to rush to the bedside of Lazarus and bring him back to full health. And I'm always fascinated, you can read this in your quiet times this week at home, John chapter 11, it's an amazing story. But I'm always fascinated by the fact that it says when the word came to Jesus that Lazarus was sick unto death, that he responded by saying, let us stay here for a few more days. This is the exact opposite of what you would expect him to do. It was the exact opposite of what they expected him to do. Um, He was sick, and Jesus didn't come to him. And by the time Jesus finally got around to coming to him, as you know, Lazarus was already dead, and they had already had the funeral, and they had already laid him in the tomb. It is obviously too late. And everyone is confused. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but it's in John chapter 11. I'm just going to read you the one verse. But in John chapter 11, verse 37, here's what it says. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Is that a fair question? Sure seems fair to me. I mean, I mean I've, I've had the privilege from time to time, not every time, but from time to time, I've had the privilege of being in a room and, and praying for someone who was in dire straits physically and seeing them healed. I know from experience, I have personally been miraculously healed by the touch of Christ through the prayers of his church, I have been in the room when I have seen other people healed miraculously by the touch of Christ through the prayers of his church. But I'll tell you this, if I've prayed for 10,000 healings, I've maybe seen five. And it brings up a legitimate question. Is my faith too weak? Am I the problem? Maybe the problem is the sick person. Maybe their faith is too weak. I don't get it. How is it that Jesus will sometimes heal somebody and sometimes won't? How is it that Jesus will sometimes heal a marriage and restore a family and sometimes it never happens? How is it that Jesus will sometimes respond to a prayer for protection and protect somebody from a terrible accident and other times we go to a funeral after a terrible accident? How is that? It's a legitimate question. Why does it seem that sometimes Jesus cares enough to heal and other times, I don't know, does he just not care? Everybody was confused. And they had a point Jesus had already healed lots of people. There were blind people walking around Jerusalem who could see now. That is a pretty big change to go from blind to seeing. There were deaf people who Jesus had touched who could now hear. That's a big change. 
There were crippled people who had never walked in their lives who were now dancing through the streets of Jerusalem because they had been touched by Jesus. That is a big change. There were lepers who were made clean, restored to the community and reunited with their families because of the touch of Jesus when no one else would ever dream of touching them. That is a big change. But this was different. Lazarus wasn't sick. He was dead and buried. This was going to require more than change. And so, John chapter 11. Okay, fine. You can turn there. John chapter 11. We're going to look at a few of these verses here in John chapter 11. Um, I, I read you verse 37 while you're turning there. Let me read that again. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus... Again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, um, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, that you always, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. When they opened the grave, it stunk. Why? Because he was dead. And when he came out of the grave, now alive and standing before them, it still stunk. Why? Because of the grave clothes that were wrapped around him. And Jesus' first response is free him from those stinking grave clothes, the only last remnant of what death did to him. And when he gets freed from the grave clothes, now he is free indeed, and there is no more stink. You see where I'm going with this? Do you see how this applies to your life? Do you see how this applies to our level of stink? And, and how, how God says, listen, if I'm going to actually call you forth, that which was dead to be made alive, if you're actually going to be born again to a living hope, then all of the remnants of death are going to be removed from you. You are not going to live in the stench of death when in fact you've been raised to a living hope. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Too many so-called Christians claim to be born again, but we're walking around like zombies in the stench of the same grave clothes in which we were buried. We're still wrapped up in our old ways. We're still living in the stench of the death that once we had to endure. 
But Jesus has not just called us out of death. Jesus has called us into glorious new life. He has a plan that goes way beyond a little bit of change in your life and mine. And to experience that life, it's not enough for us to walk around and come out of the tomb. We need to throw off the grave clothes and begin to experience new life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And yes, you're wondering, is he still talking about therefore? Yes, he is. We're not talking about reformation. We're talking about rebirth. Guys, I'm trying to come up with as many words as I can to describe this because this has to get pounded into our heads because we have, by and large, as the American church, accepted a different definition of what it means to be born again than what the Bible says. And we've thought, well, if I'm going to make it to heaven, I mean, I'll just be glad to get there by the skin of my teeth, and maybe I'll just move into, you know, the, the bad part of town in heaven. You know, if that, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, that's good for me. And, and what I'm trying to do now is just survive this life till I get there. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I am not saying this health, wealth, and prosperity stuff. I am not saying that you're never going to struggle again, that you're never going to suffer again, that God's going to fill your bank account, that God's going to answer every prayer the way you want it answered. That's not what the Bible teaches, but I am telling you this. He hasn't raised you to a new life that will one day be yours. He has raised you, Christian, to a new life that is yours right now. And if we're missing that... It breaks his heart. I love the fact that there in John chapter 11, we didn't read this verse, when he arrives at the tomb and everyone's warning, everyone is mourning. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Why? You you think he didn't know what was about to happen? I feel like if I was him, I would have been laughing. Everybody's mourning and I've been going, you people are so stupid. Do you realize who just got here? Watch what I got planned. But he was actually grieving with them. He was actually brokenhearted because of the power of death. Because he didn't create human beings to live under the power of death. He created us to be people who experience the newness of life. That's what it means to be born again. And so after giving us 12 verses of good news about the life that Jesus died to give us, Peter begins to tell us about what the transformed life is going to look like today. As people who have been born again into new life in Christ, you and I are going to live differently. Look again at verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Yes, I know, at this rate we'll be done shortly after the rapture. But that's okay when we're in heaven. Well, the preaching will be better in heaven. Never mind. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, get ready. 
That's what he's saying. Get ready because everything will be different from here on out. Have you been born again into living hope? Well, then get ready because everything's gonna be different. Have you encountered the living Christ? Well, then get ready because everything is gonna be different. Have your sins been washed away? Then get ready because everything's gonna be different and the rest of 1 Peter is gonna be all about how different he's going to make our lives. And I told you this when I introduced the book. Some of you are going to leave here on some Sundays angry with me because of what Jesus teaches us in his word, to which I say, don't be angry with me. Send all of those emails to Scott. He's an elder. He wants those emails. But don't send them to me. Because, I mean, this book is going to confront us on, like, gender roles You think any pastor in America today wants to preach on gender roles? I do not. This book is going to talk to us about trials and God's plan for us to stay in trials. Don't you think I'd rather preach to you about how God's plan is for you to never have any more trials? I would love to preach about that, but I have to throw my Bible away and preach on something else. The, the book of 1 Peter is going to be tough for us, but he is going to tell us what this new life looks like right here and right now. Therefore, get ready because everything is going to change. And the first thing he tells us to do now, now that we have this new life, is to prepare our minds for action. That's what it says in verse 13. Literally, it, it's kind of a strange phrase, and, and depending on what translation you have, may not say prepare your minds for action. It it seems like every translation sees it a little bit differently because it's a strange Greek term that we're not that familiar with. But the Greek term basically is a military term and literally it says to gird up your loins for action. So you can see why they changed it to prepare your minds. Because we go gird up your, what does, is that like a diaper changing thing? (laughs) what What does that mean exactly, right? But remember, this is, this is first century Roman Empire, right? Every one of these people on a daily basis sees Roman soldiers. They're everywhere. It's the most powerful military force in the history of the world at this point. And those Roman soldiers, you've seen the pictures, you've seen the movies. Um, I don't know how they got away with this because this all seems a little feminine to me, but they wore dresses, so they, they had these skirts that came down to here as a part of their uniform as soldiers. And so when they would have to go into battle, what they would literally do would be they would pull up their skirts and tuck them in their belts so that their legs were free so they could move and fight and run and do the things they needed to do and not get all caught up in the flowing skirt that was a part of their uniform. So when they were told to gird up their loins, what that meant was, hey, it's all been casual. It's all been comfortable. It's all been fine. We've just been marching, but now we've come to the battle lines. Everything is going to change. So gird up your loins. Get ready because everything's about to change and you had better be ready or you're not going to survive it. And Peter's telling us that since Jesus has given us new life, We too need to get ready. And he tells us that we get ready first and foremost by the transformation of our minds. 
He says, prepare your minds for action. He says, keep sober in spirit. In my, in my Bible, I have underlined the word minds and I have underlined the word sober. Sober. Now, I, I'm sure, I, I'm, I'm quite confident none of you has ever had the experience of being intoxicated. But maybe you read about it in a book or you saw it in a movie or something, right? Um, so let me just ask you a question. When a person is drunk, do they make better decisions or worse decisions? <laughs> you know, because you had a friend, right? I know. Uh, does, does their understanding of reality become better when they're intoxicated or does it become worse when they're intoxicated? Now you see why he's using the word sober. He's saying that our minds need to be clear. Our minds need to be sober. Our minds need to be focused because this new life that Jesus is going to give us and call us into and make possible for us is nothing like the life we've always lived. And if we just keep going by rote memory, walking the way we've always walked, we're not going to experience the newness of life that Jesus has borne us into. So Peter's telling us that we're going to have a series of choices to make as we walk this path with Jesus in this new life he's given us. And we need to get our minds ready for action. We need to maintain a sober and a serious spirit as we walk this road. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in a ditch on the side of the road. And how do we do that? We do it by keeping the main thing the main thing. Look at the second half of verse 13. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This grace he's been describing for 12 verses. Fix your hope completely on that. And guys, I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to be callous. I don't want to be harsh. I say this with great, great compassion. But some of us have set our hopes way too low. We're hoping for a better boyfriend. We're hoping for, for a, um, a new job. We're, we're hoping for a physical healing. We're, we're hoping for, God, please, a tax refund. We, we've set our hopes here. And he goes, listen, all that uh, it matters. It's not insignificant. But it pales in comparison in the significance of the hope of Jesus Christ. There are some things that are temporary and there are some things that are eternal. And he goes, you're going to have to discipline yourselves to set your mind, focus soberly, seriously on the hope that is only in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we need to live our lives like we really believe that Jesus Christ is our living hope. Listen, <laughs> the gospel is either true or it's not. You're either born again into a living hope or you're not. And if it's true, if the gospel is true, and, and by the way, how many of you can attest that the gospel is true? That Jesus actually gives life, that he actually gives hope? How many of you can attest to the fact that Jesus is alive in you, amen? How many of you can attest to the fact that Jesus gives us life and purpose and meaning and hope that far exceeds anything this world has to offer? Can you attest to that? I can too. I for one know that this is true. 
I don't hope it's true. I don't think it's true. I don't wish it was true. I know it's true. I know that Jesus is alive because he's alive in me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Hallelujah. I once was without hope, and now I live every day in the hope of the gospel. I once knew nothing but confusion and despair and death. But Jesus made me alive in him so that I now know peace and joy and hope and love in Christ. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. There's an intellectual side of all this. I'm, I know I'm speaking subjectively. I'm, I'm happy to, to wade into the intellectual side with you if you have questions or comments. I, I feel pretty prepared to debate theology with the best of them. I can make a great argument and give names and dates and places for the historical accuracy of the Gospels, for the fact that a person named Jesus of Nazareth actually lived, died on a cross, and rose again on the third day. I am absolutely confident of all of that intellectually. But do you want to know why I'm so sure about Jesus? It's not those reasons. You want to know why I have put all my eggs in the Jesus basket and if Jesus turns out to be a lie, I'm completely lost and have wasted my whole life? You want to know why I've reoriented my whole life around a Jewish carpenter who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? It's, it's not because I know about him. It's because I know him. It's because he's alive in me. And when the storms of life get rough, I have to fix my hope upon the truth that Jesus Christ is alive and well and living in me. Oh, my fellow Christians, we need to focus our minds on what's true. We need to fix our hope on Jesus Christ alone. He is our living hope. Jesus, he didn't pay the price for your sins so he could reform you. He paid the price so he could transform you. It's not about rule keeping on the outside. It's about transformation on the inside. We talked earlier about the butterfly. Butterfly, kind of the worldwide symbol of transformation, right? Imagine a butterfly has gone through the entire process of becoming a butterfly. The crawling and the chrysalis and the, the restructuring and, and the fighting to get out of the chrysalis and the, and the spreading of the wings for the first time. And he looks and he says, wow, I've been transformed. I could fly. And then he spends the rest of his life walking. It's ridiculous, right? It's absurd. And it's the way a whole bunch of Christians are living their lives today. But to come out of the tomb, shake off the grave clothes, and walk in newness of life, it takes faith, it takes courage, and I have some news for you. Sometimes the transformation hurts. Sometimes it's painful to fix your hope on Jesus and let him do a transforming work in you. 
To do it, we have to humble ourselves. We have to, we have to stop fighting and let Jesus take over and do some surgery. I love C.S. Lewis. I love his philosophical writings. I love his um, fiction and fantasy books. The, the Chronicles of Narnia, as far as I'm concerned, are unparalleled. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the books in the Chronicles is a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in the voyage of the Don Treader, we meet this young boy named Eustace. And Eustace wants nothing more than power. As much power as he could possibly get, all he wants is power. He wants to be in charge. He's sick of answering to others. He wants to be powerful. And I'll let you read the book to find out how, but, but he's granted his wish. And he becomes a fierce and awesome and powerful dragon. And he hates it. And everything about his life as a dragon is miserable to him so that he finally cries out and wants to be changed back. And he meets the great lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure in these stories. And, and Aslan offers him the opportunity to be transformed out of this terrible state. But there's a catch, he says. The transformation is going to be incredibly painful. And here's how Eustace responds. I just I wrote down the quote. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He ripped it off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled orange, and smaller than I had been. I'd turned into a boy again. You see, if you're going to let Jesus do this sometimes excruciating transformational work in your life, you will end up smaller than you were before. That there is a humbling process that takes place and suddenly your life is not about you and it's not about your dreams and it's not about your wishes and it's not about what's fair. It's about his glory, his power, and his life being lived through you. And for that to happen, you have to get smaller. Real transformation is scary. And it hurts. That's why so many people choose to stay in the hopelessness that they have and that they know rather than entering into this, this um, dangerous place with God. To experience transforming work in your life, you have to humble yourself. You have to ask him to do it. And then you have to lay down and let him do it. Is it worth it? Eustace thought so. Read the book. Lazarus thought so. Read the book. The thief on the cross thought so. Read the book. The apostle Paul thought so. It's in the book. Everyone who has ever submitted to the powerful work of Jesus Christ in their life and humbly laid down and said, Lord, do with me whatever you will, thinks it's worth it. 
And I can tell you unequivocally after 44 years of doing my best to stumble along with Jesus and try to hold his hand through it all, I absolutely tell you it's worth it. But a life of surrender to Jesus is a choice that each one of us has to make, not once, but again and again and again and again and again. Isn't it time you stop settling for reformation when God designed you for transformation? Fix your hope on Jesus. He will give you life abundantly. If you're a Christian, he's given you wings. Don't you think it's time to fly? Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we come to you as people who, to one degree or another, every one of us experiencing brokenness. Every one of us um, stumbling in this process of walking in the newness of life. Every one of us feeling the pain of self-disappointment, discouragement, feeling the pain of what others have done to hurt us, feeling the pain of our confusion about why you don't behave the way we think you should. But we come to you, God, like the boy who's become a dragon, and we say, this stinks. We come to you like Lazarus who is in the tomb when nothing to do to save himself and we say, this stinks. We come to you, God, and we ask that you will scoop us up, do the transforming work in our lives, not just once but forevermore, that we would walk in the newness of life as people who by your grace have been born again. And as you do this, Father, we will give you all the praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.